0: if you have uh, your own copy of the Bible, whether that's print or electronic, would you pull that out? We'll go ahead and look at this passage that we just heard read, Luke twenty-five or Luke 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke is the third gospel uh, in the New Testament, um, and the 10th chapter, it's the big numbers, 25 is the small numbers, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. And um, we will look at this passage together because I think uh, it's really familiar to all of us, this Good Samaritan story, kind of the idea, or it's at least we're well acquainted with the idea of the Good Samaritan, or what that might mean, or what it means to be a nice person, and the world around us would go, yeah, Good Samaritan, like, take care of people if they're in need, right? Take care of someone if you see them and help, like, that's a good virtue. I like Jesus' teachings, um, I just don't think that he's the Son of God. Like, that, even people who have that mindset, this is a really nice parable, right? But what, was, what stuck out to me this week is the context of the conversation between this lawyer and Jesus that brings this parable kind of a whole other depth, a whole other depth and a whole other weight. So let's look at that. Let's look at that together. If you look in verse 25, um, our passage opens with something that could be like a classroom scene, right? You've got Jesus, who's this teacher, And you've got people sitting around and it would have been actually pretty common for maybe there to be a different levels of learning, right? And someone to ask, to stand up and to ask a question of the teacher that was maybe a little weighted or a little bit more challenging with the idea that the teacher would then dialogue and then there would be this this back and forth of learning. Well, um, we're given some insight actually though into the motivation of the lawyer, aren't we? What did it say? Look at verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So here we have right off the bat, we know this guy, he's not like being genuine. You ever been in a classroom and you know that person who's just, they know everything. They know more than the teacher, right? Well, it's, it's, it's that, but then there's also a little bit more of a sinister bent here. Because that word, to test or to tempt, it kind of has this idea of, of dangling something in front of someone to draw out what's really in them. And uh, it reminds me of kind of a, of a court scene. And I was, last night, I was watching clips of the final court scene of A Few Good Men. You guys, we know this movie? You know, Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You want answers? I think I'm entitled to answers. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth, he tells him. You know, this is like, son, son. we live in a world that has walls, and on those walls stand men with guns. You know, that kind of like, you need me on that, that whole deal, right? And what he's, what he has done up to that point is—you want me to keep going? I, we can. Okay, that none of that was necessary. I apologize. But at the the the, the, the lawyer going. The lawyer's going like, okay, so if you told your men and they always follow your orders, you told your men not to touch the man, then why did he? Then, then why did Santiago need shipped out on that airplane? Why was he in grave danger? You said danger. And I said, grave danger? And you said, is there any other kind? I can read it back to you. This is what he says to him. He's What is he doing? He's drawing something out. And so there's this, there's almost a court scene happening right here between the lawyer and Jesus. This lawyer is an expert, not, not a lawyer in, in like a court, courtroom lawyer, but he's a lawyer that would be an expert in the Jewish law. Um, there would be some court elements to that, but just religious aspects. And so he's putting Jesus on trial. Did you order the cord red? You're gosh darn right I did. It's a famous movie scene. He doesn't say gosh darn, but whatever. (laughs) The lawyer is setting up the guy on the stand, right? And so in the same way, this guy's trying to set up Jesus. So Jesus has said some pretty provocative stuff up to this point, right? Jesus, I mean, if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, even in Matthew, it's just chock full of like, you've heard it said uh, not to be angry. You've heard it, excuse me, you've heard it said not to murder in verse 21 of Matthew 5. But I say to you that anyone who is angry Has actually, uh, with his brother, is actually liable to judgment. He's upping the ante. Well, I've not killed anyone, but have you been angry? That's like, that's provocative. He's actually giving a fuller meaning to the law. Or, you've heard it said to love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's upping the ante. It's pretty provocative. Or even this, verse 27 of Matthew 5. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He is, he's, taking this, he's interpreting the law of God in its fullest and most maximum uh, uh, sense. And this is challenging the sort of nitpicky, limiting uh, rules of these people around him. And so there's debates over what does God really mean when he says X? And so they're trying to get Jesus to talk about that, all right? But that's not all. What else has Jesus said? Jesus has said things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He said things like, I and the Father, God, are one, making himself equal with God. And and they're trying to kill him for that, aren't they? And he said things like, before Abraham was, this guy who lived 1,800 years before him, I am He's making really bold claims about who he is in addition to the fact that the law means more than you think it means. So because of this, the Lord is constantly upping the ante and challenging these notions of the day and he's being put on trial for what does it truly mean to follow God? Well, Jesus does a masterful thing, doesn't he? Look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to him to the lawyer, and if we could put the text of the, of the gospel on the screen, that might help if anyone doesn't have the, um, the scriptures with them. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he's getting dialogical. He's saying, let's, let's figure this out together. So Jesus is actually doing a really good teaching thing, which is to get people to kind of, it's the law of discovery, principle of discovery, um, that you can kind of help discover these answers together and it sticks better. But also he's, he's turning it back on this lawyer. He's playing, he's playing chess. So the lawyer, to avoid dishonor in front of everyone else, actually has to answer. And so he gives a really good answer. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Boom. This was, this would have been, this wasn't actually original to Jesus. Clearly, it's in the Old Testament. This would have been maybe one of the many answers that could have been given for what does God really require? Jesus commends the guy's answer. You've answered correctly. You have answered rightly. Hasn't he? That word for rightly is orthos, um, orthopedics, orthodontics, right? To make things straight, to fix things, to make things normal. Um, In Mark 7, 35, Jesus heals a man who can't speak. It says he looses his tongue and the man then is able to speak normally or rightly, correctly, orthos. So it's this, it's functioning according to what is normal or standard. Well, we have a a word in Christianity um, that uses ortho, uh, orthodox you guys know this word, orthodox? Even if you don't know what it means to be orthodox as a Christian, which is to have uh, right worship, you, you're familiar with the word orthodox, right? If something is unorthodox, you might say something like, well, uh, I took a really unorthodox path through college, right? And, but I still got a, a job. Or I took, this guy's got a really unorthodox throwing style, but he's still really accurate, or whatever. Unorthodox means not normal, not standard, but it, you might say it still works, or maybe it doesn't work. Well, in the same way, Um, Jesus is saying, you've given an answer that is orthodox. What you've answered constitutes right worship and right conduct before God. So what's the point? What's the point? What is he really asking Jesus to do? He's asking, this lawyer is asking Jesus to get down to brass tacks. He's asking Jesus to get down to the fundamental point of all of this. We got, he's got, they've got religion, they've got sacrifices, they've got all kinds of rules and stuff, but like, get down to it. How do you receive eternal life at the end? How do you do it? And Jesus's answer is, well, the man's answer, which Jesus commends, is to love God and love others as the fundamental, as the fundamental guide. And of course, there's more that goes into that God is there. God has spoken. God has revealed who he is. God has revealed how to worship. God has revealed that we ought to love our neighbor. What must I do to be orthodox? Is what's being asked. What must I do to receive eternal life? Well, this is pretty easy. We know what this means. We know what it means to to worship God. We know what it means to worship or to love neighbor. Um, But wait. Is it that clear? Is it that clear? Because the man then, we're given another insight into his motivation. He's trying to justify himself before Jesus, and he says, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? What's he doing? It's not as cut and dried. Is it this guy? Is it that guy? There's thousands of people around here, Jesus, in our day and age. You could could get on your phone and have access to who's your neighbor. I mean, seriously, you could be in communication with millions of people in a moment. There's all these causes out there that you could donate your time and money and effort to. Like, there's seemingly endless now connection and uh, access to all kinds of people across the world. Who is my neighbor? How do I make that discernment? How do I make that decision? That's a really good question. His motivation to justify himself is actually to try and limit the scope of that. And Jesus perceives he's trying to limit the scope of that to a sort of person that he's really comfortable loving. That's why Jesus then responds with the parable that he does. But I want to go back, and I really want to hammer home this point, because what's at stake here is how do I be orthodox? How do I worship God rightly? How do I uh, please God with my life such that I might actually receive eternal life. How do I get saved? What happens to me after me die? How do I know that I'm going to heaven? Like, this is what's at stake. Do you guys feel that? Jesus answers the man's question with a story. And the story is well known. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not complicated. We can discuss this in a few points and, and get to it. We, I think we all know what it means because Jesus actually tells us the meaning of it. So there's a man who's understood to be Jewish, right? He, he leaves Jerusalem to go down to Jericho and it's on this uh, notoriously difficult road. It's about 17 miles. There's switchbacks down. They descend about 3,000 feet. So there's switchbacks and there's caves. And uh, it was really common for robbers to rob people here. So this is like, it's a really good just setup, up, sensible story. Well, he gets stripped of his clothes probably his only set of clothes at the time. People didn't have just like closets, right? Uh, these are really valuable items. Um, robbers would create diversions and tricks to, to waylay people. And so they, they rob this guy and they leave him, you know, seemingly dead. He's probably unconscious and stripped of his clothes laying in the road. He looks dead. That's what this means. It's kind of like on the field of battle, they would, they would strip guys of their, of their um, armor and their stuff that they could reuse at the time. You're, ba- you're basically, you're as good as dead. You're laying there. Okay, so what happens? A guy comes by who is a priest. The priest stays away for whatever reason. The the Levite stays away for whatever reason. Why is it significant that they stay away? Well, they're actually geographically his neighbors, aren't they? They're from Jerusalem. These are religious leaders. These are people that are in the same class as the man, the lawyer, asking the question of Jesus. They didn't do anything. They didn't have mercy on him. They didn't help him. They walked around him. They had their own affairs. They had religious obligations. Maybe they wanted to, re- you might hear, they wanted to remain uh, ritually pure. Um, we're not given those details and they really don't matter much because what's, what the point is, is like, who is actually being a neighbor? The main point is that the religious leaders of the same class as this lawyer questioning Jesus are unwilling to show compassion and mercy on this person, aren't they? Well, in contrast, a Samaritan shows up and shows mercy. And a Samaritan is a person of mixed uh, Jewish and Assyrian descent from the northern part of, the, of Palestine, of the area of, of uh, Israel. They were considered like half-breeds by the Jews at the time. And so, you know, we have records to show that there's a ton of animosity between these groups, both ways. It would not have been, uh, in fact, yeah, it would not have been accepted or normal for these people to be friendly to one another. It would have been normal to have animosity, and they're certainly not included, both geographically and relationally. They're not included in this idea of being a neighbor. Of course not them, right? Well, Jesus holds up this Samaritan man as the positive example. He uses the positive example, while the Jewish religious leaders are used as the negative example, and the Samaritan actually has compassion and helps the person, right? So the lawyer is trying to limit the law of God to apply to a certain section of people that uh, wouldn't have been very difficult for him to love, right? Like you buy a nice house and a nice place with nice people with an HOA that keeps things pretty monochrome, right? And like, hey, the person next to me probably has not a lot of money to like take care of their stuff and it works and um, the little stuff they need is like, hey, can you watch the dog while I'm on vacation? Like, I'll be really nice to that person. Like that's that's kind of what's going on is these people in the in the upper crust of Jewish culture who have religious know-how. I mean, if they're just being really nice to each other, I can do that, right? You can do that. But what is Jesus doing? He's not limiting it to who you just see, who you just live next to. Jesus takes this law, this command to love your neighbor and he actually blows it up, and he brings it, he grows it up, and he fills it up to say, this is actually a way of life. Being a neighbor is actually a a virtue. It's it's important that we see this. He digs in. Jesus nails the point home because he asks the man a very specific way, with specific verbiage. Look what he says to him in verse 36. He says, which of these three, which of these three who walked by the man, do you think Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Proved to be a neighbor. Who demonstrated by their actions that they were neighborly? Who showed up and actually did the thing that God said to do with the person who was right in front of them? Not who lived closest to them. Not uh, necessarily uh, who, who was best associated with them in social life, not who was most comfortable with them, but who showed up and be a neighbor, was a neighbor to this man who was in need and destitute. Who was it? And you see the lawyer, he's mm, kicking the ground, maybe like the Samaritan, you know, he's like not pumped that this is the answer because Jesus has him nailed. Jesus has him nailed the one who showed him mercy. Jesus then responds, he confirms that answer by telling him, go and do likewise. The point is that God's command to love our neighbor neighbor is actually, and I've just said this, but I want to reiterate that, it's actually an expansive vision of an entire life that is oriented towards compassion. There's a posture of mercy. There's a a posture of, of humility to receive whoever God might put in our path to then be merciful, compassionate towards that person, which, by the way, definitely includes our neighbors, our physical neighbors, of course. But when there's a difficult situation, it's like, well, I don't know them. This guy didn't know, Samaritan didn't know this man. He didn't know him. And in fact, I was talking to Vicki Gunning yesterday. She pointed this out to me. I thought this was really uh, astute or really sharp. The observation there that he took care of him that first night, but then he left. He actually trusted the man to another person. He didn't feel like he had to be a savior. He doesn't know this man. There's almost like there's an appropriate level of help for the relationship. Like he got him stable, and then said, "I don't know this guy. Like I've got my own business, but like I've done what I can." There's a wisdom to like how much we help. Can't be the savior for everyone. You can't you can't get, throw your money at every every single cause out there, right? Like you can't help every person who's asking for money or food or clothes. But but is the posture. Is the knee-jerk reaction one of revulsion, of I'm not going to get solid with that situation? Or is the knee-jerk reaction to need like, oh gosh, compassion. Like I feel this in my gut that this person needs help, and what can I do? Maybe it's not everything. Maybe it's not right now, and maybe it's not for very long, but what is it right now that God is putting in my path for me to do? This is the posture of the man, and this is the posture that that God wants us to have. It's this deep soul level, heart level sort of um, orientation towards people in need. And what Jesus is saying is, you're, you've answered rightly that you ought to love God and love others if you want to inherit internal life. And you know what that includes? That includes actually helping people that you'd rather not help. If you want to be orthodox, you show mercy to all without discrimination. And that's, that's actually a beautiful message. And that wasn't necessarily a common thing in the world of the time. And we kind of are like, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea in our culture. But like, there are places in the world today where like with classes and different ethnic struggles and tribal wars going on, like that is not, that's a, that's a Christian ideal that has kind of permeated our culture. And it seems sort of common sense to us, but it's not common sense for humans. It's Christian. It's Christian. And so if we claim Jesus Christ, this is how we orient ourselves. So we've we've talked about how do we be orthodox? What does it mean to be orthodox? What is right belief, right worship, right activity? Well, we know that it includes mercy. It includes this posture of uh, humility, of compassion towards others, right? Why should you do this? Why should you be this way? I mean, it's not convenient at all. It's not comfortable at all. It's not comfortable. It'll cost you something to really do it. Why should you do it? Why should you be this way? Well, I've got two reasons. Um, The first reason is because it, I mean, apart from the fact that like Jesus said to inherit eternal life, this is part of it. So that's, I'm not gonna talk about that, but that's a big deal. But the first reason I'd say, is not just so you can be a nicer person, but actually because it reflects God's own character. It reflects God's own character. See, if we go back to the original command, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and flip back myself, scroll down to Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is the third book in the Bible. If you go to chapter 19, it's this really... um, in our context, kind of bizarre chapter because there's like laws about all kinds of stuff that we were like, what is going on? But it starts, it all makes sense in context. And the Lord spoke to Moses in verse one saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy. You shall be set apart, uh, set apart, (laughs) set apart and pure in your actions. Why? For... Because I, the Lord your God, am holy, set apart and pure in my actions. You shall be set apart and pure because I am set apart and pure. And you belong to me, therefore you're an extension of me, therefore you represent me to the world, therefore you better do that accurately. Better do that accurately. And then one of the ways he pl- this plays out in that same chapter is verse 18 when it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but your own people. See, this is where you can start doing interpretive gymnastics. It's like, oh, he's just talking about Israelites. I don't have to be to other people. No, to your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in loving your neighbor as yourself, you are actually communicating the character and holiness of God to that person primarily, and then to the world around you. It's actually a speech act to be merciful. It is a a message about what God is like to be compassionate and merciful. You see that? Orthodoxy involves knowing certain truths. It involves uh, about God and the world. Yes, we have to know God as he is. It's not just a matter, though, of being a nice person and just having these beliefs that we assent to. And then just kind of being a nice person where it's comfortable. No, it being orthodox is being oriented towards God in the world fully with all of our lives so that we're properly worshiping him and properly reflecting him in the world. That's orthodoxy. So when we're not being merciful and compassionate, we're actually telling people that God is like something else than what he really is. And we're actually telling a lie about the character and nature of God to those around us. And God doesn't like it when people lie about him. When I'm not compassionate, when I'm not merciful, when I'm angry, or I'm impatient, or I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm actually, as, as God's child, I'm actually misrepresenting the character of God, and that's not okay. And of course I do that. And Of course I need to repent for that. So it's, it's, in, it's incredibly important in the mission of God, and the mission of the people of God, that we would actually reflect God accurately in how we live, because we're communicating the character of God through our actions, not just through our words. So if we disagree on something, we disagree on all kinds of things, right? I'm not going to get into it. But like, there's a lot of division and disagreement in our world right now. There always has been, but just the fever pitch just feels crazy. The way in which we do that, as Brian has said in the last couple weeks with principle, matters because it communicates the way in which God dealt with the division between him and us. How did he do that? It's point two. The second reason is because God was a neighbor to us. God was a neighbor to us. If you continue further down in chapter 19 of Leviticus to, to verse 33, it'll, it says, when a stranger, he's talking to Israel again, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. Fascinating. And you shall love him as yourself, Why? What does it say? For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You were enslaved. You were foreigners. You had no land. You had nothing to your name. You were weak. But I saw you. I heard. I was faithful to my promises. I brought you out and I brought you in. I'm bringing you into a good land. And when you are there, don't forget Don't forget what I brought you out of. Don't forget where I, and in the same way, Jesus commands us to show compassion and mercy because when we were enemies, when we were sinners, Jesus became a neighbor by taking on a human nature and being born of a virgin and going to the cross and dying for us. He took our sin in his body on that tree that we might be healed and be made alive with him become one with with him uh, and, and being reconciled with the Father. He's done that so then now we can be neighbors just like he was a neighbor to us. It reflects the gospel. It repeats the gospel by being a neighbor. Jesus was a neighbor, now we go to be a neighbor. Be a neighbor. In the end, in the end, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory and holiness of God are the two reasons that we must be neighbors, become neighbors, and live mercifully, mercifully and compassionately towards those around us. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.